good to have you here on Wednesday night. And you're probably wondering what I'm going to be answering. And so I'm going to tell you what I'm going to be answering. Tonight, I'm not going to teach so much from the Bible as I'm going to teach you about your Bible. Now, what we call this in seminary is apologetics. Apologetics is you learn how to defend the faith. I want informed people in our church. Now, here's why. Because the Bible's under attack. God's under attack. Of course, the Bible's always been under attack. But I'm going to share with you some things that you may have always wondered about your Bible. And if you haven't wondered about it, I think you're going to like the questions anyway. But you're going to have to put on your thinking hats. How many of you can say, I've got a thinking hat? Well, gosh, we need to have an altar call here. That was about half of you. But no, we're going to learn some good things tonight. Um, like, how can we know the Bible is really the Word of God? Because isn't that the devil's number one attack? Hath God said? Right? That was the first thing he hit Eve with. How, are you sure God said that? How do you know God said that? God didn't say that, Eve. So we're going to deal with that first tonight. So let's pray. Father, thank you that you gave us the holy word of God. It's your book, Lord, inspired by you, preserved by you, given to us through the ages to your people so that we would have a firm footing, so that our faith could grow, so that we would understand things about you and ourselves and life we would never have known apart from the word of God. And Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Can we just lift our hands and say, Lord, thank you for this great book. If you've got your Bible in your hand, just wave it. Just hold it up to God and say, thank you for this great book. This book's been under attack, uh, but we're going to show you tonight why it's the word of God. And we thank you, Lord, for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them, you're going to learn some things tonight. Perk up and listen. Amen. Now, I got to tell you, I was, when I got saved, my family had been totally secular. I was not raised in the church. I was raised in a home that believed in evolution and believed in all kinds of things that were not of God. My father was an intellectual, and my father, what I mean by that is he was very intelligent, and he would hit you with questions. And I had to learn early on some answers to tough questions that uh, maybe some of you didn't because you weren't raised in that kind of an environment. Thank God I was able to leave my dad to Jesus a few years before he passed away. But um, So I had to learn early to dig for answers about the Bible because not only did he hit me with questions, but my stepmother, the woman he was married to 35 years or so, um, was also an intellectual type, and she would hit me. As a matter of fact, she had been a former pastor's wife, but not like me. <laughs> I mean, what I mean is more uh, liberal, and um, I, I could tell you the denomination, but I won't, but if I told you, you would understand that. And so she would hit me with questions, questions about Genesis, questions about the reliability of Scripture, how do you know it's the Word of God? And, and Jeff, it's full of contradictions and this and that and the other. And they would hit me with these things. And i got to tell you, more than once, I, I walked out of the room with my mind reeling with these questions, and I had to dig for answers. So part of 
what is on my heart, why I'm sharing this with you, is because our culture theologically has gone south. Now, any old way will get you to God. You don't need Jesus to get to God. And God sees your good intentions, and Jesus is not the only way, and the Bible is not the Word of God, and if you really think it's the Word of God, then you're kind of stupid. And so I want to arm you with some answers so that you can answer those around you. Because some, some of you, you don't witness because you're afraid you're going to get questions like this. How do you know the Bible's the Word of God? How do you know? All right. So that's the first question I'm going to deal with tonight. How can we know that the Bible is really the Word of God? Because that's what the Bible says about itself. Well, one of the great proofs is the amazing unity of the Bible on so many different levels. Now, I want you to keep something in mind. It was written over a period of 1,500 years. 1,500 years it was written by 40 different authors, yet they all agree as if they'd gotten together in a room and decided what to say. You know what the odds of that are? Now, let me show you some of the areas where there is. We're getting a lot of pop-up here. I don't know what we're going to have to do. Um, let me... Um, Deal with you, or deal with some of the areas where there is great unity in the Bible. The first place is the unity of doctrine. The unity of doctrine. The whole Bible agrees with this statement the Lord thy God is one God. That's an example. The Bible says the Lord thy God is one God. Second, the Bible teaches us from stem to stern that God is the creator of the entire universe. Everybody say, God made it. Evolution didn't make this. Evolution didn't create this. God did. The Bible agrees from Genesis to Revelation, God's the creator. And then the nature of man is tripartite, the way the Bible describes man. All these authors over and over again agree that we are body, soul, and spirit. Isn't that interesting? We're made in the image of God. And what is God? God the Father, God the Son. God the Holy Ghost. He's one, but there's three that comprise the one. We are tripartite in the same way. We have a body, and our body holds our soul. And in the core of our soul is our spirit. Now, I'm amazed how often I need to say this, but I'm going to say it again. The minute you die, your body dies, your soul and spirit go into the presence of the Lord. The second, you breathe your last. Your soul and spirit go right into the presence of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So there's no soul sleep. There's no purgatory. There's nothing like that. Now, the Bible agrees in the importance of shed blood and redemption. You take Cain and Abel all the way back to Genesis. Why did God accept Abel's offering and not Cain's? Because Cain brought from the fruit of the field. He was giving God vegetables. Can I just kind of use a little humor tonight and say, God is not a vegetarian. But there's only one thing that can bring us forgiveness, and that's why Cain and Abel were making an offering, so that God would forgive them. But God refused Cain's and accepted Abel's. Why? Because Abel brought a sacrifice of blood, a blood sacrifice. And God received him. All through the Bible, folks, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible makes it clear it is by the blood, 
By blood, we are forgiven. By a sacrificial offering, we are forgiven. So there's unity of doctrine all the way through the Bible. These 40 different authors over 1,500 years agree with one another. And then there's the Bible's historical credibility. A lot of times you will find uh, atheists, like uh, today we have what I like to call the unholy trinity of atheists. There is Hawkins, Harris, and Dawkins. Christopher, uh, Christopher Hawkins, Sam Harris, and Richard Dawkins. They all wrote books. One of their titles was God is Not Great. I did not go buy that book. Amen? But they, they all three, they're called the New Atheists. And these New Atheists have really attacked the Bible. And one of the things they attack about it is its historical credibility. But I want to tell you tonight, the Bible you hold in your hand from Jonah to Noah and the ark, Jonah being swallowed by a fish, the great flood. I mean, you name the incredible miracles of the Old and New Testament, the Bible is not mythology. It is real people, real events, real places that are historically verifiable. Amen? It's not a book of fables. You're not holding Brothers Grimm. You're not holding a book of fairy tales. You say, well, Jeff, do you believe that a great fish swallowed Jonah? Oh, absolutely. You know why? Because Jesus did. Jesus talked about Jonah. Do you believe that there was a universal flood and you believe there was an ark that floated above the water and, and that God saved that one family? Absolutely I do. I believe all of those things. And you know what? I don't have to commit intellectual suicide to believe them. The claim of a universal flood. 250 to 300 flood accounts have been discovered. Another example will be in the late 1800s, Sir William Ramsey, a scholar who was skeptical of the authenticity of the book of Acts, which we just finished teaching, set out upon an archaeological expedition in Asia Minor with the declared intention of disproving the histor historicity and accuracy of the Bible. He said, I'm going to go disprove the Bible's historicity, its claim to historical accuracy. After years of research, years literally digging up evidence. He completely reversed his views. He became convinced that Luke had authored Acts. And this is what he wrote. Quote, Luke's history is unsurpassed in respect of its trustworthiness. Luke is a historian of the first rank. Not merely are his statements of fact trustworthy. He is possessed of the true historic sense this author should be placed along with the very greatest of all historians, and that's from a non-believer. And I just had an angel visit me. Thank God. This happens from time to time, and we don't know why it happens, but it happens. Everybody say amen. So there you have a secular man saying, I checked the historicity of the Bible, just the book of Acts. And this man, Luke, was a top-notch, grade A, historian. Folks, don't ever let anybody cast doubt in your mind on the trustworthiness of your Bible. Because see, the minute you say, well, you know, I believe this part's right, but not this part. I'm not so sure about this part. If you do away with one verse, you've just opened up your mind for an incredible battle. Because if one verse is wrong, how can you prove many others aren't wrong? And how will you ever fight the devil 
if you're doubting the word of God with which you fight the devil. Amen? And then there's the Bible's scientific accuracy. I love this one. You know the Bible claims that the earth is round, spherical in shape. Can I read it to you? Isaiah 40, verse 22. Listen to this. It's amazing. Isaiah writes, it is he, God, who sits above what of the earth? The circle of the earth. And all of its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Did you know the Bible never claimed the earth was flat? People did. People did. Now, I was told, well, if you believe the Bible, then you believe that stupid book that told you the earth was flat. It never did. Before there was any science at all to discover the earth being round or flat or whatever, Isaiah, by the Spirit of God, said, the earth is spherical. It's round. And then, listen to Job. Job said, our planet is suspended in space. Listen to what he says. Quote, he stretches out, that is God, stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on what? Nothing. Now, next to the first five books of the Bible, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And here he is telling us something about earth long before the day of telescopes and other astronomical scientific equipment. He did it, folks, by divine revelation. He said, our planet is hanging in empty space. Amen. The Bible says there are paths in the seas. Psalms 8 verse 8 talks about that. Well, one man decided he was going to see if he could discover those paths. And his name was Matthew Murray, a Bible-believing former naval officer determined to discover the paths in the seas and the wind circuits utilizing the charts and logbooks he had at his disposal from being in the Navy. And he did discover and plot many of the wind circuits and currents, such as the Great Gulf Current, which is 40 miles wide and 2,000 feet deep, that comes out of the Gulf of Mexico into the Atlantic. He discovered the Japanese Current, the California Current, and others. And he utilized this information for sailing ships of his day who used the information that he had amassed and it reduced by as much as three weeks the time required to cross the oceans. How did he discover those paths in the sea that Psalms talked about? Easy. He believed the word of God. He believed the word of God. The Bible says there's an endless water cycle. Ecclesiastes. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. To the place from which the rivers come, there they return again. There is Solomon talking about the water cycle. Very, very scientific knowledge. And there's another proof the Bible is the word of God. It's teaching on biology. Do you know the Bible claims life does not arise spontaneously? Meaning, evolution did not give us life. Something did not just come alive one day by way of evolution. Now, I know I'm harping on this a lot, and I know the night that I went into evolution, it was a little bit heady and a little bit deep. But, folks, I want us to get this. I don't want us to be out there, you know, on the outskirts where we can't look at somebody and say, wait a minute, you're questioning the word of God. I want to tell you something. I know my Bible, and I know how I got my Bible, and I know about my Bible, and I know what it really says. And if you're going to tell me life came from evolution, you are wrong. Because the Bible says in Acts 17, verse 25... He, God, 
gives to all things life and breath. Not evolution. I can't wait for these series to go out on the radio. I'm going to get some real feedback. Because there's some people that are going to look at you and say, if you don't believe in evolution, you're just ignorant. You know what? Really? Seriously? I'm going to say, if you really think through evolution and decide you're going to believe it, it's a religion. It is not a scientifically proven fact. It's a religion. You have to decide to believe it because there's no scientific proof for it. Life did not arise spontaneously. God gave to everything life. The, the creation of God amazes me all the time. I was out cycling the other day, and I, and I went far. I went way out by uh, the lake. And I'm cycling along, and it's so quiet, and my bicycle makes no noise. And it's so peaceful. And all of a sudden in front of me comes bounding this whole herd of deer. Oof, together, they jumped and ran. Some of you men, I'm looking at you, you're salivating. You're, you're liking this story, and you wish you were there with your gun, but not me. And I watched them go, and I thought, just happened? No, 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 no. No, 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 no. God gives to all life. That's Bible biology. God gives life. And then when I got to where I was going, my little halfway point where I turn around, you know what ran right out in front of me? A roadrunner. Mimi. There he was. Mimi. Right in front of me. And I looked at this guy. And I thought, I thought, look at him. And, and he, he was suddenly jolt and run. I mean, a, a speed spurt. And I saw him dip down. I wondered if he got a lizard or something. I didn't know. But roadrunner, deer, the beautiful birds in the air, the lake, the scene that I was looking at. All the trees, the beauty, the clouds. Come on. He gives to all life. That's Bible biology. The Bible claimed way before Darwin or genetics were discovered that living things reproduce according to the laws of heredity. I taught you that when I was going through the thing on evolution. That God said over and over when he created something like the mammals or the birds or whatever, they must reproduce after their own kind. That's Bible genetics. That's heredity. That is Bible biology. That is God telling us in the Bible that living things reproduce according to the laws of heredity. Long before modern science dabbled into all of this, the Bible taught genetics and that living things produce after their kind. The Bible rightly claims there is a basic difference in the cell structure of the major classes of living things. Listen to what Paul wrote. And remember, all these Bible writers were moved by the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote, all flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men. There's another flesh of animals. There's another of fish, and there's another of birds. Do you know what he's telling us right there? He's telling us that there is a difference in the cell structure of the major classes of living things. Bible biology. Another proof of the Bible is God's word is found in its early understanding of medicine, 
long before microscopes and laboratories. In the book of Leviticus, we find that sanitation laws infer an understanding of germs. The sanitation laws instituted by Moses about, for instance, here's an example, don't touch dead things. He said, don't touch dead things. If you touch something dead, it's unclean. Why? Because the Holy Ghost understood germs way before we discovered germs. Amen. We are having our minds expanded tonight. Amen. The Bible understood that there were these invisible things called germs before we ever discovered them, long before science ever put them under a microscope. The Bible understood that life is in the blood. We already covered that. The Bible makes the claim that all nations share a common physical unity. Listen, Acts 17, 26, quote, and this is Dr. Luke quoting Paul. And he, that is God, has made from one blood. Everybody say one blood. See, you can have different colored skin, but there's one blood. There's black skin, brown skin, yellow skin, white skin, red skin. There's all kinds of colors of skin. But you poke any of them with a needle, and what comes out? Red blood. Listen to what the Bible says. He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. You know what he's telling us? We all came from the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, not a random evolutionary process. So you know what that verse does? It shoots racism right out the window. That's what it does. You know, you never know what a day is going to bring Tuesday. I was here, uh, we had just finished staff meeting, and I was um, getting ready to leave, and I got a phone call that just down the road, there had been a terrible accident, and somebody was there, um, one of our church members, and asked me to come and pray because it was a fatality, and would I come and pray with the survivors? So I got in my car and I ran down there with Pastor Bob and I'm literally it was 100 yards down the service road an African American man had been in the back of a pickup truck and two younger I don't know who was driving but it was a handful of African American young ladies I'm 20s 30s had asked this man to help them move some mattresses and he got in the back of this pickup truck. And there was nothing holding these mattresses down. And they were going down the service road about 30 to 40 miles an hour, and one of those mattresses began to fly off the truck, and he reached to grab it, and he fell out. And he was instantly killed. Now, I'm going to tell you, I, and, and it was a hard sight, let me assure you. And here were these three little African-American girls, and I went up to them. And they had seen this. And one of them was the one that had asked this man for the help. They didn't even know him that well. I don't know if he was a neighbor, and he was just doing a good Samaritan thing. But when I went up to them, let me tell you something. There was no black-white. You know what I'm saying? 
There were two, there, there was me and there was hurting human beings. There was no skin color. There was no difference. They were hurting human beings and I was a compassionate human being and one who knew the Lord and I grabbed their hands and I began to pray for them and the girl that had asked him to help just began to weep and cry like a baby and then before I knew it, a couple of these other girls, they started praising God and all of a sudden the Spirit of God was there and the only reason I'm telling you this story is, folks, just because skin color is different means nothing to God. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And they didn't care what color I was. I brought Jesus to them. Now, are y'all following me? The reason I'm saying, because he said we were all made of one blood. He is made from one blood. Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. We all come from the same parents, Adam and Eve. And one of these days, I will share with you how the different skin colors happened. As a matter of fact, maybe that'll be one of our questions. Boy, it's quiet in here tonight. It's why racism is so insane and totally illogical and irrational. All right, now, then there's the amazing evidence of prophecy. I'm telling you, you hold in your hand a book of prophecy. Did you know about one-fourth of your Bible is prophecy? I'm going to say that again. About one-fourth of your Bible is prophecy. Now, did you know that there's not one prophecy in the Quran? Well, why would that matter? Because it's not a supernatural book from God. But your Bible is. There's not one prophecy in the Quran, but your Bible is one quarter prophecy. Now, why would that matter? Because if those prophecies don't come to pass, you've got a fake book. First, let me just give you an example. There is the amazing evidence of prophecy for Christ alone, just, just regarding Jesus. Let me give you some examples. The Bible prophesied his lineage, that he would come from the lineage of the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes. And that prophecy was made by Jacob when he was blessing his sons 1,400 years before Jesus. Now, folks, we're talking about odds here. We're talking about amazing odds. What are the odds you could do that? Though the Messiah is going to be born, I've got 12 choices. I'm telling you that he's going to come from the line of Judah, and I'm telling you that 1,400 years, 1,400 years before he shows up. Of the 12 options, he's coming out of Judah. The events connected with Jesus' birth were all prophesied. Virgin born, Isaiah 7:14. The virgin shall be with child. The Bible prophesied in Micah 5, verse 2, he'd be born in Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. The slaughter of the innocent children that happened under Herod when he was angry because Jesus' parents and the wise men uh, threw him for a loop. And he got angry. And he sent out the edict to kill the children. That was prophesied by Jeremiah centuries before the event. How could he have known that was going to happen in Bethlehem? His escape to Egypt from which he would return was prophesied in Hosea 11 verse 1. and Matthew 1.15 it was fulfilled. 
The Bible in Isaiah 42, 1 through 4, if you want to know the character of Jesus, what his character was like, it was predicted by Isaiah, what his character would be like. And Isaiah's prediction was quoted by Matthew in Matthew 12, 15 and 21, because Matthew was looking at Jesus and realizing, wow, he is exactly what Isaiah said he was going to be. His betrayal, his rejection, his death, his resurrection, all predicted centuries before Jesus' arrival and fulfilled perfectly. You know Psalms 22? You read Psalms 22 and, and you have David being moved by the Holy Ghost and he is speaking first person. Jesus is sp speaking through him. And you know what he says? They have pierced my hands and my feet in Psalms 22. Do you know that when David wrote Psalms 22, there was no crucifixion, there was no cross, it had not been created yet? But here in Psalms 22, you've got Jesus in the first person. David is being moved by the Holy Ghost, and Jesus speaks right through him before he even came to earth. He speaks through David before he is even manifested on earth, and he says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. They have surrounded me like dogs. They have, they have cast lots for my garments. Centuries before it happened. How do you do that? How do you do that when there was no cross? Listen, God dwells in eternity. And for God, everything is always present tense. You know, 30 years from now in your future, he's already there. He's already there waiting for you to arrive. And he's preparing a table before you in the presence of your enemies. And your cup will run over. And, he's, and goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. I mean, God's already in your future waiting for you. But he's also here right now. Because he doesn't live in time. He lives outside of time. He lives in eternity. That's why I always tell you, God never says, well, I'll be. He's never shocked by anything you do. He knew you were going to do it before you did it. So when you go to him and say, oh, Lord, I don't know how to tell you. As if he's sitting up there and here's Jesus on his right hand. and They're both going to go, did you know that? No, they already know. He, he's He's... In the future. I mean, as far as God's concerned, are you ready? You're already seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You're already there. You're already there. We are seated. But the Bible says, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, no, I'm not. I'm in Turning Point Church in a chair. Now, as far as God's concerned, because as far as God's concerned, it's done. You're redeemed. You've already been raptured. You are in heaven. You have your inheritance. You've got your dwelling place. You've got your mansion. It's a done deal. He's just waiting for us to catch up with it. I mean, I know it's a mind bender, but it's true. So here's the Bible. One quarter of it prophecy. The only way... That anybody, anything could ever predict the future is if that person were a true God. 
who dwells in eternity. And that's just a few examples. Did you know that in all 353 Bible prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus? Can I say that again? Three, start counting to 353. You ought to see the long list. I looked at the list today. You ought to see the list laid out in front of you of the 353 prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible has a lot more prophecy than that. But already fulfilled, 353 prophecies about Jesus have been fulfilled. Perfectly. Only God can do that. Everybody being blessed tonight? See, your Bible is unassailable, irrefutable, indispensable. It's right, and it's trustworthy. And it's not antiquated and backward and any of that. It's, it's, uh, it's as today as the newspaper today. Now, then there is how, this is one of my favorite parts, how the Bible stacks up against other ancient writings regarding li- uh, reliability. Now, I'm going to go academic on you for a minute, okay? So hang with me. All ancient manuscripts were written on papyrus, which didn't have a very long shelf life. So people hand-copied the originals to maintain the message and circulate it to others. So you have, let's just say, you've got... You've got Paul, and he's writing 2 Timothy or having somebody write it for him. It's going on papyrus. And, and uh, people in that day knew this papyrus isn't going to last long. It's going to fall apart. It's going it's to decay. It's going to deteriorate. So the only way that we're going to keep this original writing is for copyists, C-O-P-Y-I-S-T-S, copyists to make word-for-word, letter-for-letter copies of the original, because there was no computers, no copy machines, none of that. Papyrus rolled up into scrolls. We've all seen it. So people would hand copy the originals, not just the Bible, but Plato, Aristotle, Homer, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, these writings that go way before the time of Jesus. And we consider them valid today. Now listen carefully. The more copies we have of an ancient writing that agree with one another, the more confident we are that we have what was originally written. Let me give you an example. If I have 10 copies of 2 Timothy from centuries ago, and I've got 10 copies, and those 10 copies were made in different time periods. They're all old, but they weren't copied in the same time period. They're separated by decades or maybe a century, but I've got 10 copies. Now listen carefully. If I read the first one, the oldest one, and I come to the newest one, and the newest one is saying exactly what the oldest one says, then I know I've got good copies. You with me? Because this is how we got our Bible. And so the more copies you have that all agree with each other, then the more confidence you have that you have what the original writing said. For instance, few people doubt Plato's writing of the Republic. You don't have to go read Plato's Republic. I've read some of it. Um, It's not my cup of tea for a book. 
but I've read some of it. But it's very, very famous, The Republic. It's considered a great, great, great work of literature. It's a classic. And if you take college philosophy, you're going to take Plato. Now, Plato wrote around 380 years before Jesus arrived. The earliest copies we have of Plato's Republic are from 900 A.D., after Jesus. But wait a minute, Jeff. You said Plato wrote it around 380 years before Jesus. And now you're telling us that the earliest copy we've got is from 900 years after Jesus. That's exactly what I'm telling you. You know what that means? There's a 1,300-year time gap from when he wrote it. And we only have seven copies in existence. Seven. Seven. But you can go ask any college professor who teaches philosophy, ask them, do you believe you got the original words of Plato? And he says, oh yeah, we've got the original words of Plato, but you've only got seven copies. And there was a 1,300-year gap between when he wrote it and the earliest copy you've got. Well, we just trust that during those 13 years, everybody who copied it did it right. That's a big chunk of trust. I'm going to give you another example. Caesar wrote something called the Gallic Wars. You don't have to worry about that. But the Gallic Wars were written around 100 to 44 B.C. That means about 100 years before Jesus. The copies we have today are dated 1,000 years after he wrote it. And we've got 10 copies. So that means there was a 1,000-year gap from the time Caesar stuck his quill in some ink and wrote it and the newest or freshest or earliest copy we've got. So there's a thousand years of copying we don't have any, any record of. But you go ask a professor at some college, do you believe that we really do have Caesar's Gallic Wars? And he'll say, oh, of course we've got Caesar's Gallic Wars, but you've only got ten copies, and there was a thousand-year gap. You don't know who copied it during those thousand years or if it's even accurate. They'll say, oh, it's accurate, it's accurate. I love, I love back in a professor into that corner. Because they'll tell you, oh, we've got Plato and we've got Caesar. Then I say, do you believe the New Testament is valid? No, I, I really don't. I think, it's full of, uh, I think it's full of mistakes. I think it's full of inaccuracies. I think it's full of, of contradictions. Really? Because when it comes to the New Testament, that was written between 50 and 180, 50 years to 100 years after Jesus... We have more than 5,000 copies. I'm just wanting that to sink in. Not seven, like Plato. Not ten, but 5,000 copies. And all of them are written, all of them are within 50 to 225 years after their original writing. Not 1,300 years or 1,000 years. 
5,000 copies. Now, and they agree. They agree. They agree. They agree. Are you following me now? I know we're in college tonight, but I want you to get this. They agree. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the rest of your New Testament, you can know there's 5,000 extant copies out there, and they all agree. So you know you've got what was originally written as the Holy Ghost moved on holy men of old. And not only that, when it comes to the copying of scriptures, scribes, who we call monks, you know, you've seen those movies where you got that, you know, that bald guy and he's got his little monk uniform on or his monk one piece thingy he wore and he's hunkered down in some little monastery with a candle and he's writing, you know, putting his, his, his ink pen, his quill. I sh- I've got one back there. I should have brought it out. Brandon's not in here. I've really got one. I sign really important documents with my quill pen. I really do. I have to dip it in ink. I'm serious. So he would dip it in, in the ink. I want you to think about the labor that went into this. Because there was no typing. There was no copy machines. There was no nothing. It was sitting down with Second Timothy or Genesis in the beginning. God, and they're hunkered in their little bunker with a candle, their eyes going dim, but here's the deal. They feared God. So they made real sure, I'm going to make sure I get every letter, every jot, every tittle, every mark, and I'm going to get it right because this is the word of God. They checked and rechecked their work to make sure that it perfectly matched. And boy, what a labor of love. How long did it take? How long did it take to copy the New Testament this way? How long? And what labor of love? How long would it take? And and would that run a number on your back and your neck or what? Hunker down. Writing. Wouldn't they have given anything for a bick? Seriously. Even when I write my name with my little ink, I've got to dip in the ink once or twice. Labor of love. But we have 5,000. What the New Testament writers originally wrote is preserved better than any, any, any other ancient manuscript. We can be more certain of what we read about Jesus' life and words than we are of the writings of Caesar, Plato, Aristotle, and Homer all combined. Now let me give you some good news about the Old Testament. As for the Old Testament, in an exchange with the Sadducees regarding the resurrection of the dead, because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, Jesus asked them if they had not read what the Old Testament said about the resurrection of the dead. Now look what Jesus said to them. He said, have you not read that which was, read the next three words with me, spoken by God. What is Jesus saying about the Old Testament? It was spoken by God. 
Thus we have Jesus totally affirming that the Old Testament scriptures are the word of God. They were spoken by God. Now this quote from Jesus also affirms that the Old Testament had been faithfully preserved up to his day and time. Dr. Robert Wilson, a Bible scholar who mastered 45 languages, I can't even imagine that. I'm still struggling with my Spanish. I do know some Greek, smattering of Hebrew, but 45? Now, he mastered 45 languages in his lifetime. He made a very careful study of the Old Testament. And as a result of his research, here's what he said, quote, We are scientifically certain that we have substantially the same text that was in the possession of Jesus Christ and the apostles, and so far as anybody knows, the same as that written by the original composers of the Old Testament documents. The Bible shouts from many vantage points and proofs that it's the inspired word of God. Everybody say, praise God. God. Now I'm going to deal with a couple of other questions quickly. Did that help you? Did that bless you? Are you seeing what I'm trying to get over? It's an amazing book. Amazing book. It's a miracle book. Now, how old is the Bible? The Bible, the earliest writing was of Moses, who wrote the first five books. We call the first five books the Pentateuch during the 15th century B.C. So 1,500 years before Jesus, Moses wrote. Only Job might be older. So if you start with the first five books of the Bible written in the 15th century B.C. up to today, your Bible is about 3,500 years old. Now if you want to calculate the age of the Bible from the time the last book of the Bible was written, which is the book of Revelation, And when the book of Revelation was written, then what we call the completed canon, C-A-N-O-N, which means the completed book of the Bible, the Bible was complete when the Revelation was written, then the Bible is about 2,000 years old. The actual writings of the Bible, beginning with Genesis and ending with the Revelation, took place over 1,500 years with 40 authors contributing. So a 3,500-year-old book from the time... It first began to be written. It's 3,500 years old. Now, a couple more quick questions. I've gotten this question even recently. Some people claim that we don't have all the Bible. Is that true? Well, this question is likely referring to what is called the Apocrypha, which is a Greek term, and it means hidden or secret things. We call the book of Revelation the apocalypsis, which means the revelation or what was hidden is now being revealed. But the Apocrypha is in Catholic Bibles. And if you, how many of you came out of Catholicism? How many? All right. How many of you have been exposed to the Apocrypha? Okay, a lot of you. How many of you have wondered why it's not called the Word of God? Tell the truth. I'm not going to get on you. A couple of hands went like that. All right. The Apocrypha consists of 14 books that were written at various times, about 300 B.C. to 30 B.C. Now, what's interesting about that is 400 years, a 400-year, four centuries elapsed between Malachi finishing his prophecy and and Jesus appearing and the New Testament starting. 
There was a 400-year time of prophetic silence. God didn't say anything for 400 years, but that's when the Apocrypha was written. I'm not going to read all the books in it to you. You've heard of some of them. Judith, got a sister named Judith. The Wisdom of Solomon, Wisdom of Ecclesiasticus, Bell and the Dragon, that one sounds good. First and Second Maccabees. Now, some of these books are valuable as history, particularly the books of Maccabees, but they are not inspired books. Now, you know how we know they're not inspired? Why they weren't included? Because they were written, they were written before the New Testament. So why aren't they included? Because not one time did any New Testament author quote the Apocrypha even once as an authoritative word from God. But they quote the Old Testament hundreds of times. So none of the New Testament writers considered the Apocrypha inspired. The 16th century reformer Martin Luther included the Apocrypha in the German Bible, but he printed them separately because he said they were not inspired, but they were profitable. There is no internal or external evidence that would cause us to include the Apocrypha as Scripture, and that includes the book of Enoch. The book of Enoch is not inspired. We can be confident that we have all God intended for us to have in our Bible. Can we hold our Bible up again? Can you just see this thing, this beautiful book, as gift-wrapped from the hand of God to you? What a gift. I'm going to ask us to stand together tonight. Can you all go ahead and pull this up? And let me just, even though it's squeaking on me, I'm standing. So there we go. Um, I want us to read this closing quote together. How many of you are glad you came tonight? Amen. Amen? I know it was a little bit heady, but we need to go academic sometimes because here's where the Bible's being attacked in these very things. So can't you just wait to get out and go witness on a college somewhere when they tell you the Bible's archaic and antiquated and if you believe it, you're dumb? Say, really? Really? Let's talk. Let's read it together. Bible scholar F.F. Bruce writes, read the quote, We can only stand in awe of the providential preservation of the sacred text of the Word of God. Yes, we can trust the Bible. It is a book by which we can both live and die. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord. Can we just thank Him for preserving this amazing book? Thank you, Lord, for giving to us the Word of God. Thank you for your precious word. We praise you for the prophecies fulfilled, for its scientific knowledge, its biological knowledge, its astronomical knowledge, its nautical knowledge, its historical veracity. We thank you for We can trust this Bible as the word of the living God.